0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Deb Flaschenberg and this is Yoga Birth Babies, and I am absolutely thrilled and excited to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Buckley. So some of you guys may not know who she is, so let me give you a little bit of her background. Dr. Sarah Buckley is a family physician with training in family physician obstetrics and author of the internationally best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Sarah is also the mother of four children, all naturally born and naturally raised, now in their teen years and beyond. Sarah currently combines mothering with her work as a writer and lecturer on pregnancy, birth, and parenting. Sarah has a special interest in hormonal physiology and is the author of the scientific report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published in January 2015 by Childbirth Connections, now a program of the National Partnership for Women and Families, with support from Dona International and Lamaz International. This report has been described as one of the most revolutionary and influential publications on maternity and newborn care ever issued. Sarah is committed to the best possible outcomes for mothers, babies, fathers, and families in the relationship to hormonal physiology in childbearing, and is currently also pursuing a PhD at the University of Queensland on this topic. Wow, that's quite a resume that you have in (laughs) Thanks, David. So, super excited to talk to you. I'm just going to jump in, unless you had anything you want me to say before we started some questions.
2: No, it's all good. Um, I'm here in Brisbane in um, sunny Queensland in Australia. It's the middle of winter, but you may hear my dog bark, so if you hear a dog, that's Marla.
1: That's okay. You may hear my baby cry, so (laughs) we're pretty even on that. So, Sarah, um, about a year and a half, I was really fortunate to attend this day-long, wonderful class on undisturbed birth, and it really helped me redefine and edit the way I speak with women about the need for privacy and protection during birth. So that idea of undisturbed birth can be new for many people, and it's extremely important. So would you mind describing it?
2: Yes, well, the first thing to, to realise, um, Deb, is that we're actually mammals. We're um, mammals because we have mammary glands, we suckle our young. But our reproductive system, and particularly the episode of labour and birth, or parturition as it's scientifically called, has developed from our mammalian ancestors, which is, we think is about 65 million years ago, the first placental mammal. So over those 65 million years, human birth has evolved in the context of the wild. So we gave birth out there where you know, elephants and dogs and wolves and, and things are still giving birth. So our whole system of childbearing is really oriented to successful birth in the wild. And in the wild, it's so critical um, that the labouring female knows she's in a safe place to give birth because the listeners who've, who've had a baby already, you'll know that you know defending yourself against a predator is not an easy thing in labour. You can't do fight or flight very easily. But also the labouring female is very vulnerable because she's behaving strangely. There's these um, strange noises, strange noises smells, the blood, the amniotic fluid, the tasty little morsel, as I describe it, that comes out at the end that any predator would love to gobble up. So that the hormonal physiology, the way that our hormones are designed to work in human labor and birth is has evolved over these millions of years. And the critical thing for all mammals, for the laboring female, is that she feels private, safe, and unobserved. And I talk about that in, in quite a lot of detail in my workshops. And we tell some animal birth stories, but basically, the laboring female is in this extraordinarily quite exceptional state of mind where she's very you know kind of on another planet and there's hormonal reasons for that beta endorphins oxytocin as well so you know if you're with the woman in natural labor or you've been through that yourself what we call physiologic labor and birth where it's your own natural body processes you do enter this kind of altered state um, you know it's it's a bit like a runner's high the high levels of beta endorphins and you become a little detached from your surroundings and what I say is that helps us to transcend the stress and pain of labor. But at the same time, we also have high levels of the fight or flight hormones, um, adrenaline and noradrenaline, just high enough to keep us alert. So you're kind of alert. And and again, if you've been in labor, you'll recognize this like you are in this kind of dreamy state. But also if someone mentions anything about your safety or your baby's safety, even in the next room, you can pick it up because you've got these sharp senses. So, So I call feeling private, safe and unobserved the core requirements for birth among all mammals and that doesn't mean we've got to go and give birth in a cave you know some mammals are solitary birthers but other mammals give birth in social groups like elephants like mice like dolphins have a female um, helper with them so it really how the labouring female feels safe that's a really critical thing is to set up a situation for yourself where you can feel as safe as possible and another way of thinking about labour and birth I don't know I meant this in the workshop there but you know these hormones we're talking about hormonal physiology of childbearing Almost identical to the hormones involved in making a baby. Now we've got oxytocin, hormone of love. We've got beta endorphins, hormones of pleasure and reward, and they are those ones that put you into that altered state of consciousness. We've got adrenaline and noradrenaline that peak at that moment of birth or the moment of orgasm, which are actually very similar hormonally. Then we've got prolactin, the hormone of breastfeeding and tender mothering, which is also a a stress reducing hormone, and that's also released both having a baby and making a baby. So the kind of um, conditions that we need to to have a baby are actually very similar to the conditions we need to make a baby so that's quite a good rule of thumb if you're planning a birth or if you're a birth attendant you know is this a situation in which you know the woman would be comfortable would be able to successfully make a baby you know that means that it's a good condition for her to have a baby that she will feel private safe and unobserved that her levels of stress hormones particularly the flight of fight hormones will be low enough for the hormonal physiology to flow um, yeah that
1: It's so funny that you're talking about, because I believe that that you can't make a baby in bright settings and people disturbing you. And I just recently caught on to this YouTube video. I don't know if you've heard it or seen it. It's called Sex Like Birth, and it shows basically what if conception sex was managed like a hospital birth they have people coming in and out and putting monitors on and turning the lights on and asking questions during the whole thing. So
2: I would say go to YouTube and check that out. I think you'd relate to that quite a bit. Yes, yes, I've I've seen that one. And, um, you know, the other great thing about that is it it really highlights that, that the people coming in or the people caring for us in the situation that we're in, um, currently in maternity care are usually strangers as well. It's not just, not just that there's lots of people there because, you know, some women do want lots of people around them when they, they give birth, but no one would volunteer to have lots of strangers around them. And that's particularly upsetting to our like primal alert, alertness systems. We could say the limbic system, the primitive part of the brain goes on red alert when we have strangers there.
1: So you're basically talking. We kind of break it down to the hormones. You know, if the adrenaline increases, it's going to deplete the uh, the functionality of oxytocin. So we really need to try to make moms feel, as you keep saying, like safe and undisturbed. So what are some ways that we can help the mom honor the physiological response in her body when in labor, especially if she's in a hospital setting or feeling pressure to stay within like a certain schedule from her care provider or hospital?
2: yeah so the first thing you know right going right back to the beginning of pregnancy or even before is choosing your model of care because we know that some care, maternity caregivers are you have are associated with high rates of physiologic birth and some with low rates so if you really want to aim for a physiologic natural gentle however you want to describe it birth you know you really need to choose a care provider that's expert in that and the expert in that is generally the midwife so choosing a midwife as your primary carer um, wherever you are are in the world, but including in the U.S., uh, is a good start. You know, we know that there's multiple studies, including randomized controlled trials, women are randomly allocated to midwifery care or standard care that show better outcomes, that show lower rates of interventions, that show high rates of satisfaction, and interestingly, lower rates of um, fetal loss after 24 weeks, which is really interesting hormonally to me as well. So model of care is really important. Um, Again, you know, using those criteria when you go and and visit that place where you're planning to give birth. Is this somewhere where I could make a baby? Can I arrange a situation for myself where I feel private, safe and unobserved there? Especially if it's your first baby because you know those systems have never worked themselves out before. You've never experienced this whole hormonal physiology and it, it takes a bit longer to kick in. You know, you really need to feel even more private and safe with your first baby. And it, it's kind of why often first time mums end up giving birth in the smallest room in the house, which might be the bathroom, the toilet, the shower, yeah, where they feel really, really safe. So, you know, place of birth is really important as well. And if a mid, midwife or midwifery care is not available to you, or if you're in a high risk category where you do need, you know, um, obst- obstetrician, OB care, then having a doula with you. And again, there's really good evidence that having a doula is supportive birth companion with you, reduces the need for interventions, increases satisfaction with birth as well. So those are really great kind of structures to set up for yourself. And the other way to answer that question, you may remember this part of the workshop, Deb, where we did a, a, some workshopping ourselves and we looked at, you know, we people got in groups and talked about how can they apply these principles of undisturbed birth in their own working environment. And there's some, been some great uh, suggestions over the years that I've been running these workshops and these are from midwives and, and labouring women themselves and you know one of the primal systems of our brain that's very connected to this limbic system the middle layer the kind of more primitive part of the brain is a sense of smell so you know when we go into those strange places and there's all these strange smells that actually activates the alertness system as well so you know taking something that smells familiar some women use aromatherapy but you know one that i really like is you know take your own pillow and you know you can stuff your head into your pillow and that you know that means you're not seeing strange things you're not interacting with people you're kind of create your own zone and you're also having familiar smells around you so there's a whole lot of suggestions like that but it's really you know how thinking for yourself what is going to make me feel private and safe and unobserved at that really primal level it's not intellectually I'm safe going to hospital it's really you know what does my body need to feel private and safe and unobserved here.
1: And then also the idea that we need to remove some of the fear around the birth. What do you think about that? Because that's going to increase the adrenaline. So I guess, of course, the private safe. How do you suggest a woman acknowledges or works with some fear that might come up?
2: So, yeah, so some you know some fear is normal in labour and birth. I mean, it is, particularly if your first baby or even with subsequent babies, it's an unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. We're walk, going through this passage, this doorway, and we don't know for sure what's on the other side. We don't know how we'll cope with that passage. So, you know, some anticipatory fear is quite normal. But it's really having care providers that can work with that, you know, that aren't going to kind of medicate your fear, that are going to be able to work with you and appreciate that this is just a normal Process and there is a point in labour as well where you could experience what's been called physiological fear, like towards the end of labour, you know that you can get a surge of this adrenaline and noradrenaline in a um, physiologic labour. They're also called epinephrine, norepinephrine, and and just those hormones can make you feel fearful. And it's that part of labour you go, oh my god, I can't do it! Take me home, cut it out of me, take me to hospital. You know, <laughs> it's called transition because you're in transition from one hormonal state to another. So to be with care providers who can actually hold the space for that and not freak out themselves. Or not be trying to stop your fear but to encourage you to work with your fear that's really really important so I think for personally I think care providers are the answer to that but also the continuity so that by the time you get into labor and birth you have a solid relationship with your care providers and again it's not something you get a lot in a standard maternity care system even if you've got your own OB you're not going to see them that much you're probably not going to discuss your personal emotional reaction to pregnancy so again your own midwife or doula is someone that's much more likely to be open to those discussions with you, and and particularly if you do have some specific fears, you know um, that you've. We certainly can imbibe a lot of fears from our culture. If you've had previous bad experiences, have friends with bad experiences, those are really important to talk about through the pregnancy. And you know, studies have shown even for women with you know really massive, you could say you know medically diagnosed fear of labour called tocophobia, those kind of you know, those kind of interventions of having the ability to talk it through with a supportive counsellor in pregnancy really does increase their chance of having having a normal physiological birth.
1: Yeah, everyone I talk to, and I've been doing this for 15 years, it just keeps coming back to the care provider. And the part I run into, the obstacle with a lot of my students, is the idea of a midwife seems so foreign. Even in this day where we're always talking about midwives, and they just keep staying, many of them stick with their original OB, and then they get well into labor, into pregnancy, start to learn more and then around 36 weeks realize maybe they didn't match themselves up with the right person that shares the same philosophy. So would you say at that point, you know, just get a really good doula and let them be as educated as they can to make choices?
2: Oh look, you've got to make the decision that's right for you at the time, and there's going to be all kind of circumstances involved there. But yes, definitely, it's never too late to set yourself up with an ideal situation. And you know, the other thing that I recommend, you know, if you talk about where do you feel private, safe, and unobserved, well, for most of us, that's actually going to be at home. So you know, the longer you can stay at home, you know, the more of a chance, especially with your first baby, you've got for those hormones to kick in. And you know, I describe, and this is true hormonally, that labor's like a snowball. It starts off small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and in the it's unstoppable. And that's true hormonally at the beginning of labor. You know, anything that disturbs labor will shut it down. As you say, it'll increase your adrenaline, nor adrenaline, it reduce your contractions. It's basically giving you that space for fight or flight that you'd need if a predator was around. It's that kind of response in your body. However, at the end of labor, it's a different response. And again, if you think about, you know, giving birth in the wild, you know, and a saber-toothed tiger turns up at the beginning of labor, obviously, you know, it's safer for the mother and baby to stop. In the medical away Um, but if it occurs at the end of labor when labor is this huge snowball that's virtually unstoppable it makes more sense to trigger a quick and easy birth the mother scoops up the baby and then runs away so that's actually the reaction to stress at the end of labor it's been called the fetus ejection reflex so particularly if it's your first baby but even with subsequent babies the longer you can stay home to have all those systems going until the snowball gets you could say big enough that it won't be disrupted by moving to hospital and um, again from one of my workshops Of the midwives says, I know it's time for a woman to go to labor when she can't remember her phone number. (laughs) So that's really a sign that she's deeply in that hormonal state. And it's a sign that, you know, she's had enough of these, you know, actually scientifically or physiologically, it's actually hormonal feedback systems, positive feedback systems that accelerate um, labor and birth. Like, for example, oxytocin actually has a positive feedback cycle with itself on the brain. So the more oxytocin is released, the more that gets released, which is why it's like a snowball effect. And then you get to the stage where it's virtually unstoppable and then you can move to hospital and it's not going to railroad your labour and it may, it's possible you may have your baby in the, on the way there or just as you walk in the door or within the first half an hour, that's highly likely but you're not going to get you know, the, the disruption of your labour and birth, you're not going to you're, you're much less likely to need interventions um, and you're much more likely to have a physiologic birth but again you're know, probably especially with your first baby, you know you probably want someone at home to support you or you want someone you can ring up, you know again having a low technology model of care that's going to support you to do that is going to be really helpful for you when it comes to that stage of labour. And, you know, I also want to just highlight your point that, you know, you don't, you, you, you Especially as a first-time pregnant mum, you you know you go with the flow, and you know of course you think that your care provider is there with your interests at heart, and they're probably going to say the right thing in the beginning. And then often as pregnancy goes on, they you know people start to say things to you like, "Oh, your baby's getting a bit big," and I wouldn't want you to go overdue, and you know. And then it becomes obvious towards the end that they that your care provider has a particular agenda that doesn't necessarily coincide with your agenda. So you know, I really suggest having a good hard think about it. The earlier, the better. You know. You don't want to get to 36 weeks and have to change care provider if possible. So, you know, my rule of thumb here is, you know, interview some care providers, go and see a midwife and see what she can offer you. And especially, you know, monitor yourself. Like, how do I feel at the end of that consultation? Do I feel happier? Do I feel more confident? Because that's actually, from my perspective, the role of the care provider in pregnancy is to make you more happy, more confident, more connected to your baby than you were before the consultation.
1: Well, that's perfect because if someone realizes maybe, wow, I'm not with who I thought would be my biggest cheerleader – you're saying stay at home as long as possible. Get the snowball going. Ideally, have a doula. That's my that's my little bias. I am a doula, so you know someone that can read the signposts of labor and then come in when things are unstoppable. Because if they show up too early and they're not on board with their care provider, things can start to get into that
2: cascade of intervention. So I love that's that. That's exactly comment. it. That's exactly it. And when they look, you know, for example, cesareans done in you know, the bulk of those cesareans are actually done before the woman even gets into active labor. So coming into the hospital too soon means you're going to get kind of the clock's going to start ticking and you're going to have timelines and hours put on you. And then the other thing that can happen, of course, is, you know, people want to speed up your labor. So they break your waters you know and that sets the clock ticking because then the baby doesn't have that protection and then you have so many hours to have the baby and then you're under pressure not just physiologically but you're also under pressure for the cesarean and again it can be a you know a a, um, a snowball you know it can be a cascade of intervention where you know just from coming into hospital early you end up with a cesarean that wouldn't have been necessary if you had that support to stay at home and really go through the early part of labor and get into that really active labor as it's called.
1: Yeah, so if she comes in too early and she's on the clock and they're starting intervention and she's getting more and more anxious, well then if she's not even in active labor and the anxiety and stress is lifting, I guess that's going to lift the adrenaline. And so it's going to be really hard for the oxytocin to flow. So she's really hitting a wall because she's kind of putting a wall in a uh, a hard place. So that kind of shifts me a little bit. I want to start to ask a little about Pitocin. Can you explain what happens to the hormonal balance once Pitocin is introduced? Because then if I'm understanding it, the body's natural production of oxytocin and endorphins gets interrupted or am I wrong with that?
2: Okay, well, let's, let's just go back a step. So, pitocin is a synthetic form of the natural hormone oxytocin that we release. We actually release it under a lot of circumstances. If you want to know all the oxytocin information, I'm going to refer you to my report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. So it's, a, it's it's interesting. There's been so much research on oxytocin outside of reproduction. It's called the hormone of trust, the hormone of monogamy, the cuddle hormone, the love hormone. As you can gather, it has lots of positive effects by its effects within the brain. It's released within the brain. It counteracts the stress system. It makes us warm, connected, calm, switches on the relaxation and growth, switches off the stress system. So, um, like, um, by fortunate circumstance our like evolutionary and Mother Nature's superb designers I call it we release this during labour and birth when it not only causes the rhythmic contractions of labour but it has all those same effects in the brain so it has a natural pain relieving effect it makes us calm and connected and it's also switching on the brain centres to bond with our baby so that we get that euphoria that ecstasy as I describe it after the birth when we meet our baby for the first time so that's its kind of natural function now the problem with synthetic oxytocin although it's exactly the same molecule it's it's synthesized if you look at the you know the chemical structure of it it looks exactly the same it works differently in the body because it's not released from the brain yeah when it's released from the brain into the body it has brain and body effects when it's injected into the body it only has physical effects on the body because it can't cross into the brain called the blood-brain barrier yeah so it has these physical effects of causing these stronger contractions of labor and you know if it's given early in labor the mother hasn't had a chance to build up her own pain relief mechanisms which is oxytocin and beta endorphins both help her to deal with the stress and pain of labor so she hasn't had a chance to pull those up she's getting these contractions that are longer stronger and closer together than her body naturally produces at that time of labor and then you know and labor's more painful for her and and she's not getting those central effects now does does giving natural synthetic oxytocin interfere with the woman's natural oxytocin release? Well, we can't actually answer that question because when we measure it in the bloodstream, we can't differentiate between her own oxytocin and the synthetic version. So we can't answer that question categorically. But in general, as I described before, labor is a positive feedback system, you know, and oxytocin has positive feedbacks on itself. So it doesn't, as far as from those physiologic understandings, we wouldn't expect that during labor the giving synthetic oxytocin would stop the mother's own oxytocin. And in fact, if it causes stronger contractions, there's a part of this positive positive feedback loop that I'm talking about. Those the, the sensations of the contractions actually feed back to the brain by a special nervous root nerve route. And within the brain they increase the output of oxytocin. So that's how we get this feedback loop of stronger contractions, because stronger contractions signal to the brain, brain releases oxytocin more pain relief effects within the brain, but also more released from the brain, so more strong contraction. So that's a positive feedback loop. So if synthetic oxytocin or really any anything, you know, prostaglandins, any chemical, any, you know, mechanical thing causes increased contractions, it probably is going to increase the oxytocin within the brain to some extent but not as much as if it's released from the brain and the reason i say that is from a practical perspective when we give synthetic oxytocin it, it doesn't have those pain relieving effects is more painful and generally women need artificial pain relief which is really a sign that their own hormonal physiology has been disrupted um, but there's one other thing to say about it, which is um a little complex so just bear with me so um, a a hormone is technically it's a substance that's released from one part of the body that has effects on another part of the body and the way that has effects is it binds to a specific receptor and it's a bit like putting a specific key into a specific lock the receptors on the outside of the cell wall it turns the key in the lock sends a message inside the cell what to do so oxytocin is released from the brain travels to the woman's uterus finds the oxytocin receptors on the outside of her uterus Run muscle cells, turns the key in the lock, sends a signal saying contract. So that's how it causes the contractions of labor. So obviously the more oxytocin there is, the more this effect. But receptor numbers are also dynamic. They can go up and down. So the more receptors there are, the stronger the effect. You could say the more sensitive the body is to that hormone. And you know, if we go back to that idea of laboring in the wild, it's really important that, that labor is an efficient process because all the time the mother's in labor, she's at risk of predators. Right, So the more efficient her labor, the more likely she and her baby are to survive. So I also say you know, that labor has evolved to be an efficient process. And one of the things that makes labor efficient is that before the physiologic onset of labor, the natural spontaneous start of labor, there's a dramatic increase in oxytocin receptors so that the, will be sensitive to the oxytocin she releases in labor. And again, if women have been in a situation of being administered pitocin or being induced with pitocin, you'll know that because, you know, some women you can give a little bit of Pitocin and everything happens because they've got this maximal number of receptors. They probably would have gone into labor tomorrow. Some women you can pour bucket loads of Pitocin and nothing happens because they don't have the receptors there. So receptors are really critical and not only, you know, for initiating labor and um, making an efficient labor, but the other problem is if you give Pitocin a high dose for a prolonged period, that's a really abnormal way of administering a hormone. The body doesn't produce hormones like that. body produces hormones in a pulsatile way it's released from the pituitary gland and pulses in labour causes arrhythmic contractions of labour so when we're given in this constant high dose it's kind of a biological principle of hormonal release that the body will protect itself from overexposure from overstimulation by reducing receptor numbers so you get receptor down regulation desensitisation those are technical terms but basically what it means is the body reduces its sensitivity to its own oxytocin so that's the other trouble with pitocin and it's You know, no one for sure. It's in all the research. I think it's even on the package insert for pitocin, that prolonged exposure to high levels, particularly high constant levels of synthetic oxytocin, reduces receptors, reduces sensitivity. And we know for sure that it can increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage because the woman doesn't have the receptors to respond and get nice strong contractions to stop bleeding after the birth. And probably, you know, it increases the risk of um, labor petering out, of needing help with birthing the baby. Again, that's a big oxytocin um surge as the baby comes out. So a lot of impacts can happen from um exposure to synthetic oxytocin to pitocin in labor.
1: That's interesting because I've seen women on Pitocin for, you know, ten, fifteen hours, if not longer. And then after the baby's born, the routine intervention here is that they get another shot of Pitocin to help the uterus contract. So It doesn't sound like it's ideal that we want them on that long. So I guess it goes way back to what we were saying is stay at home as long as you can um but yeah but if someone does have a very medically justified reason for induction and they do the prostaglandin to soften the cervix and then they slowly build the pit do you feel there's a certain period after a certain period of time that the uterus is going to conk out from from under stimulation or as you were talking about the way the body's receiving the pit you know like how how long is too long or is there a
2: house? it? Yeah, look, because every woman's physiology is different and particularly when you're talking about induction because, you know, that's the other thing. Like women, you know, other animals have a much more like certain um, duration of gestation like rats. Pretty much every rat goes into labor on day 22. But for women, between 37 and 42 weeks is normal. That's a five-week span. So, you know, if you're being induced at 39 weeks, you could still be three weeks away from your own physiologic labor onset, which means your own maximal responsiveness to all of these hormones, your own maximal number of oxytocin receptors in your uterus and a whole lot of other preparations that, that, that happen before the physiologic onset of labor. And by the way, if you want to know all the technical details, that's in Chapter 2 in my report. Um, so, yeah, and also talk about the, the, the Im- Im- implications for scheduled birth, for pre caesarean and for induction. So that's the first thing we don't know. We can't just where a woman is in relation to her physiologic onset of labor, we can get a little bit of an idea about the softness of her cervix because those cervical changes happen in parallel with all the other changes. Is it but you're right. I mean, Isn't I mean, sport? certainly there's times when interventions are needed. You know, and and the most useful model I find for that is is considering that a hormonal gap. Yeah, you know, there's a gap between what what is biologically normal, what the body would expect and what's actually happening. And, you know, sometimes there's good reasons for that, for a pre-labor cesarean, for an in-labor cesarean, for induction. Sometimes it is in the best interests of mother and baby. So how can we, you know, how can we recognize and how can we work inside that hormonal gap? So, you know, obviously the later the onset of, you know, the later we induce, the more likely it is that the mother's ready for labor, that the baby's ready for labor as well, which is why, you know, those new um, rules have come in or guidelines have come in saying, you know, don't do these things before 39 weeks unless you've got a really strong reason to do it. And the outcomes are generally better because the mothers have that extra bit of readiness. Um, In terms of labor and birth, you know, if your body's not really primed to do it, you are going to need that hormonal stimulation and you are going to need that Pitocin afterwards because you've really interfered with your body system. So once you start interfering, there is a chance you'll need something to mop up from the interference that you did previously. It's, you know, the cascade of intervention and there's no way around that. Um, But the other thing that the hormonal gap we haven't really talked about is we talked about um, oxytocin being a hormone of uh, motherhood, switching on instinctive mothering behaviours, actually also switching on the reward and pleasure centres in the brain, beta endorphins do that as well, so that in those moments after birth, the mother's maximally rewarded, maximally pleasured, ecstatic, euphoric when she meets her baby for the first time. And what that does, um, as my interpretation of the, the science that I've read, is that that imprints pleasure and reward in relation to her baby? So every time she sees her baby, she hears her baby, she smells her baby, she thinks that feels really good. Um, and so, you know, that happens because her brain has also been primed for these um, critical processes of labor and birth. And, you know, going back to birth in the wild, that instinctive care, the dedicated care that every mammalian mother gives to her newborn is critical for survival you know, if the mother gave birth successfully the mother and baby survive and then the mother walks away, the babies won't survive so we'll say in the report that these processes of mother-baby attachment are intertwined and intermingled with the processes, the hormonal processes of labor and birth, so when we interfere with those processes by induction before the woman's had this readiness in her brain, we're going to interfere with that side of things too And, and same thing for breastfeeding, there's elaborate preparations that the mother's body makes for breastfeeding that that are going to be um, preempted, that she's going to miss when she's induced. So again, breastfeeding can be a hormonal gap there. So, you know, in terms of labor and birth, again, private, safe, and unobserved, how can we get the mother's hormonal systems to flow? There's a whole lot of juicy things we can do to release oxytocin because it is a hormone of sex. It is a hormone of orgasm. Yeah. So those things in labor help to get it flowing Uh, much kinder to the body than Pitocin. Um, um, you know, privacy is important, as you say, and particularly after the birth, you know, when the, these hormo- you know, when there's going to be, again, these hormonal gaps, the more skin-to-skin contact, the more um, access to breastfeeding, the, the breast crawl, you may have heard of that, mm-hmm. all those things will help to mo- switch on the mother's hormonal systems after the birth, switch on the baby's hormonal systems as well. And I just want to share an anecdote, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a story I read in a, um, in a birth magazine, actually, and the mother had had two previous Um, Natural births, And this time, the third one had to have a cesarean for medical reasons. And she said, my instinct after the cesarean was to have my baby skin to skin on me and not let my baby go. And that's exactly what she did. They call it kangaroo mother care. Um, And she said, after three days, when my baby came to me, my baby was different. It felt really different to my other babies. And of course it does, because the baby doesn't have the hormonal preparations, the hormonal stimulation of labor and birth, those peaks, exactly in parallel to the mother. But she said, after three days of skin to skin, my baby felt like my other babies. So we can fill in those gaps to some extent you know, when there are hormonal gaps, but it's a much much less efficient process. The body isn't maximally primed for it. It's going to take longer. But the ways to fill in those, process, those gaps after the birth is skin to skin and breastfeeding.
1: Well, that's a great takeaway because currently in the US, about a third of moms are delivering via C-section. So for the listeners out there, if you either know you're having a cesarean or you end up having a cesarean, keep in mind that things hormonally may be different, but the skin to skin and the breastfeeding can really help create that bond and really bring, as you were saying, that gap, um, help relieve that gap. So I love that takeaway. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and for the baby too, you know, cesarean, I say, it's a bit like someone, you know, I think for the experience for the baby, it's a bit like someone coming into your bedroom in the middle of the night and it's really <laughs> cold and they pull the bedclothes off you and they shine this bright light in your face and you're just not ready to wake up. You haven't been through those whole, you know, sleep time hormonal cycles that have you ready to wake up gently in the morning. So, you know, that's the experience for the baby. They're not prepared for it either. So, any ways that we can gently get, the, you know, gently soothe the baby into life outside the womb and there's a whole lot of great things happening. They call it natural cesarean, family-oriented cesarean, gentle cesarean. So if you do need to have a cesarean, look up those things. See, you know, have a talk to your care provider, your OB, and see if you can enact some of those things where the baby's not separated from the mother. In particular, the baby's birthed straight onto the mother's belly. In some situations, the mother actually picks the baby up and brings the baby onto her belly. It's, you know, there's a few things that have to happen: the sterile field, the mother's hands. You know, it's not it's not necessarily a simple process, but I think there's more and more of that happening happening all around the world, the, the gentle cesarean. So that's worth looking at. The other, you know, really thing that, that is really helpful that actually it's interesting since I published the report, there have been, you know, some papers, you know, kind of highlighting the things that I've discussed in there. And, you know, from a hormonal perspective, I said, they you know, the best cesarean is a non-emergent in labour cesarean where the mother and the baby are ready for labour because labour has been initiated then in a you know, leisurely non-emergency way the, baby, the cesarean is done in early labour and you know, that there, I read it there was a paper that came out just a few months ago showing that those babies had better outcomes and particularly less respiratory breathing difficulties because that's the big problem for particularly a pre-labor cesarean baby they haven't had the pre-labor preparations and then the in-labor processes called the catecholamine surge, the baby gets a surge of adrenaline and noradrenaline that that dries out the lungs, that opens up the airways, that prepares the baby for breathing so that's really why you know um, listeners may realize that cesarean babies are more likely to have um, breathing difficulties and the the reason is because they don't get this in-labor surge of those hormones called the catecholamine surge. So again an in labor, non-emergency cesarean is the ideal, natural cesarean technique if possible, delayed cord clamping if possible. Those are the things that are going to help to close those hormonal gaps and then early and ongoing um, skin-to-skin contact with support. Obviously, you know, the mother's been through an operation. She needs someone to help hold the baby. She needs a partner, a midwife. You know, there's a lot of... um, structural changes that, that, that needed to shift towards that gentle caesarean. But, you know, the, the, the implications are really, you know, very positive for mothers and babies.
1: Yeah, I'm thrilled to see that starting to slowly gain some momentum, the gentle cesarean, the natural cesarean. I wanted to talk a little bit about your publication, um, The Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. So since it was released last January, January of 2015, do you feel like it's made an impact in the general practice of obstetrics? Do you feel like you know, the obstetricians have looked at that and taken that into consideration and maybe even changed some of their practices?
0: Well, look.
2: I think the, uh, the the thing about the hormonal physiology um, of childbearing is that it's a different paradigm. We're coming from what we call in the report a salutogenic paradigm. You know, um, you know, our maternity care system is based on a paradigm of pathology. Like, you know, how can we figure out what you know what's wrong and how can we kind of fix it up or prevent it from happening? Whereas hormonal physiology is a salutogenic paradigm. It's a positive health and well-being paradigm. How can we help things to go well? And that's a little foreign in our maternity care system. So. I kind of don't really expect things to change overnight, and the people that have taken it up the most strongly have been those who already subscribe to that paradigm. So midwives, doulas, you know, low technology care providers are you know are using it in their work. Um, as far as obstetricians go, it's a you know that's a a process really to get it in front of their noses, and that's really why I'm doing a PhD because I'm um, writing uh, rep- um, journal articles to put into hopefully um, major obstetric journals so that it kind of gets gets up. There under their under their noses into the kind of lexicon of obstetrics, so yeah, there's a way to go. But you know, Rome wasn't built overnight, and as I said, it is it is a new paradigm. So you kind of you know you expect that it's not going to suddenly everyone's going to suddenly take it on, and it you know it does have resource implications because you know as we talked about earlier, you know that midwives and doulas are the experts in low technology care, and you know, especially in a country like America where you know the an industry around maternity care where there's a lot of profits made from on, on, on maternity care. This is a way of reducing costs and, you know, it's a, it's a um, full-profit industry, you know, I think well, so. there is some resistance to it. Well, that's whole big can worms
1: it. that you're opening the whole maternal yeah, cost yeah. and reducing yeah, that in the education. Yeah, but it's not
2: yeah, yeah. And it's not like that in some countries. And in some countries like Australia, we have a public healthcare system where, you know, a cesarean is a negative impact on the healthcare system. So, you know, so that, 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 you know, and and there are more innovative programs happening in Australia. We have some public midwifery schemes. We have some public home birth schemes. You know, some of our governments committed to have midwifery care available to 10% of women. I can't remember by the year. But, you know, there are um uh, changes happening as you know some states have published quite revolutionary guidelines so you know there's a little bit more um a ab- to adopt that within a system that where the, the there's um, some benefit <laughs> to low-technology birth, you know, and that's the difficulty, as we say in America, that the, the birth is a for-profit industry, so the more technology, the more profits made, and, you know, really, to be honest, you know, all the work that I do is aimed at care providers and providing the science, and that's really important, but look, women, you know, l- read the stuff, read the science, read the report, and go to my website, sarahbuckley.com, and download uh, an article called Ecstatic Birth. Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor Um, I wrote that for Mothering Magazine in 2002 and I'm always updating it and that really explains a lot of the science and look inform yourself and vote with your feet you know because because it's your body and your baby and things from my point of view have huge implications like the implication of what we just talked about of switching on the mother's pleasure and reward centers in relation to her baby now that's a really long-term effect and it's another effect that's going to you know sort of have positive feedback you could say the mother gets pleasure from the baby the baby gets pleasure from the mother you get into this positive pleasure loop and that can you know that can really sustain you the whole of your parenting career you know like my i talked to my 25 year old daughter on the phone the other day and i just love hearing the sound of her voice like it gives me pleasure. And I'm sure that's because I've had that experience of my pleasure and reward centers been constantly stimulated, even through the even peripherally through the teenage years. You know, there's something to fall back on of the, the, the child as rewarding to the parent. And as I said, you know, it's that's that's my own interpretation of the data. There was a study that looked at women who given um birth physiologically without major interventions and women who'd give birth, given birth by prelabour cesarean and they put them into an MRI machine and played them the sound of their baby crying and when the women had been through a physiologic labor and birth the reward and pleasure centers lit up even though their baby was crying you know they, they had this imprint of pleasure in relation to their baby that the pre cesarean mothers didn't you know there was a hormonal gap there and as we said you can fill in that hormonal gap I'm not saying that you're not going to be a good mother or any of those things if you have a prelabour cesarean but I'm saying there's a hormonal gap yeah you you're not getting the fullness of that you know, that easy start, yeah, pleasurable start to mothering. So the more again, you know, you can fill in that gap, but it's gonna take you longer with skin to skin contact with breastfeeding, with carrying your baby, with being in contact with your baby, because all of those things again reinforce the hormones that we're talking about.
0: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Grainger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Grainger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Well, this, these are some really great tips. And going back to the feeling safe and undisturbed That just sets women up, I think, for success if they can do that. And then, of course, finding the care provider they believe in and feel supported by. And then coming into the hospital with the snowball of labor going. These are great tips. I really appreciate you sharing these. Um, And, of course, I'm also very much excited to watch how your uh, publication continues to flourish. And hopefully over time, um, the more traditional obstetricians will see that and take that in consideration and that hopefully can change how we approach Labour.
2: Do you have Yeah, look, I feel I feel I feel positive about it, um, Deb, because you know, it's exactly what happened with breastfeeding. There was a time when breastfeeding was seen as some kind of negative, animalistic kind of thing that women did, and then we discovered the huge benefits of breast milk and breastfeeding, and it's really caused a you know, a renaissance of, of support for breastfeeding. And I really think we can change things in the same way around physiologic labour and birth. I just want to add one little Thanks. sentence for the uh, American women, because I know that you have a high use of epidurals. And and I want to tell you that epidurals has major impacts on all those hormones. It reduces your oxytocin because it interferes with those positive feedback cycles we were talking about where the sensation of labor causes a release of oxytocin in the brain. So it reduces the pleasure and reward. It reduces your um, oxytocin. It makes labor slow down. You need synthetic oxytocin and then all those things we talked about. So, you know, avoiding an epidural if that's possible. And again, all those things we talked about, care provider, going to hospital late, using your own hormones, um, is really you know is really helpful, and if you do need an epidural again, there's a hormonal gap, and you know, and you fill it in as much as possible through um, uh, contact with your baby afterwards to switch on those hormonal systems that you are inevitably going to miss if you have an epidural.
1: It's interesting. I actually was just doing some studies on the usage of epidural, the percentage, and I got some 2013 stats for New York City for the seven major hospitals, and one of them's up to 97% use of epidurals. Um, the average was about 80%. And then I looked at some other statistics. The most recent I found for the U.S. was 2008, and it was about 60% of women taking epidural. Do you know what other countries the rate is? I guess, especially with Australia, do you know what the rate of epidural usage is?
2: Yeah, I haven't looked up the most recent one, but generally in most westernized maternity care systems, the the numbers are creeping up, you know, a couple of percent a year. Um, Places like... um, in Australia, we actually have a private and a public system. So within the public system that I mentioned before, where it's a not-for-profit, the epidural rates are a little lower, maybe about 20%. In the wow. private system, one-third of women give birth in a system a lot like the US, and the epidural rates are much higher, like 40 to 50% and higher again in first-time mothers. And England has um, similar figures to our public system. Again, I think it's I'm just ballpark figure, 25, 20 to 25%. Um, even in a country like the Netherlands, which has a, a uh, a solid and structural support for physiologic child. But their epidural rates are increasing. I think they're over 20% now. And that's generally, you know, kind of the way it is in most parts of the world. Um, but America has much more extreme epidural figures 70% as kind of a rule of thumb. That's from the um, Listening to Mothers reports. Um, and, you know, I think I think the problem is yeah, there's not a lot of other options offered to women. There's It's very much a for-profit system and women talk about how they're kind of pressured into having an epidural even though they're going to hospital not wanting one. And again, just going back to everything we've said before, if you want to labor with your own hormonal physiology and not disrupt it with an epidural, then, you know, choose your model of care, take a doula with you, go into hospital late, all of those things.
1: Nitrous oxide is slowly creeping in. There's one hospital here in New York City that has it for the birth center and downtown and there's another actually midwifery practice starting that will be having um, nitrous oxide. So I'd be curious to see if that can shift the epidural rate.
2: Yes. Well, it, when, when when I did the report initially, we had a much wider list of interventions to look at and nitrous oxide was on the list, but we really couldn't find any material about the relationship between nitrous oxide and hormonal physiology and you know, any and, and impact on the hormonal system. Uh-huh. So we had to take that out. Um, <laughs> It is an intervention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can say we don't think it has major impacts because it has a short half-life. It's out of the body quite quickly. It does displace oxygen within the blood, so that's why you can't use too high levels of it. That's why there's a kind of cap, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a valve system, so you can't suck too much of it. Um, You know, you just use it when you need it during a contraction, and then it goes from the body between contractions, so that's a benefit as well. It is a much lower-impact kind of analgesia, but, you know, there were some studies... um, is a couple of studies have been done looking at long-term impacts of drugs and labor. And I don't want to scare anyone with this, but one was from Scandinavia, and it was repeated in the U.S. using a U.S. data set, retrospective studies, comparing babies um, or children who were born with their siblings and then looking at risk of adult um, addiction. And there was an increased risk for prolonged use of nitrous oxide in labor. So the thing is, you know, that the baby, and again, we're going back to some basic biology, or as we understand now is epigenetics, you know, the, the ability of gene expression, genes to get turned on and off. And, you know, we understand that this is a... Really significant phenomenon, and and birth is really an epigenetic phenomenon. Your genes are getting turned on and off all over the place for the baby to, you know, adapt from you know life in the womb to life outside the womb, from you know oxygen through the blood to oxygen through the lungs. I mean, so many changes happening. So you know, we, we you know really the bottom line should be any drugs, anything non-physiological that we do at that time could have you know effects in the longer term. So you know. A, you, know, you want to choose the lowest impact thing. And if you do need pain relief, nitrous oxide is certainly lower impact than an epidural or probably than opioids, you know, um, the peridine. But we, we, we can't say that any of them have no impact on the longer term because we just don't know. We haven't looked. And again, if you want to know more about my thoughts on this, read Chapter 1 in my report.
1: Well, that is a perfect segue. Do you have any last-minute tips for our, our listeners?
2: Yeah, well, I think a lot of the things that we talked about really reflect the kind of culture of maternity care that we have right now and it's not just about the hospitals and the care providers with the kind of pathology based um, model, you know, perspectives as opposed to low technology kind of salutogenic positive, how can we promote a healthy labour and birth, but that's also in our culture and we touched a bit on this with fear so, you know, not just choosing a health you know, a low technology care provider and but also, you know, what can you do for yourself in pregnancy to really you know you could say um, protect your brain protect your ideas around birth because you know unfortunately one of the first things that happens when you get pregnant is people tell you awful stories and you've got to find a way of not having those impact your experience and um, shutting yourself off to those you know saying thanks but no thanks you know because you really you know you're very vulnerable and you're very could say open you know got all these hormones beginning to act in pregnancy that make you more soft and tender that make you more trusting with oxytocin so you really do need to protect your well-being and find this is what Peggy O'Mara from Mothering Magazine says find a healthy birth subculture find a Play group, find a, a meeting a place, or you know, that home birth, yeah, yoga class, exactly, yeah, exactly. You know where you can where you can meet with people that are, that are aligned, and that will give you positive birth stories. And you know the other great thing that's happened in the last decades is a lot of great videos on birth. So you know, those are powerful. the images that you can take in of women giving birth, of the noises. You know, like a birth as realistic, not the kind of you know, um, yeah, yeah, not the not the not the sort of fluffy, sweet version. I mean, birth is a raw process. right? Right. It's challenging, it's primal, it's animalistic. You know, you do go to those parts of yourself. So it's not sweet and fluffy things you sometimes see on YouTube, but you know, those those images of a woman in her own raw power giving birth are, are really positive ones to absorb when you're pregnant as well. So, you know, looking after your mind and pregnancy.
1: Yeah, I think we need to erase some of the movie impact of the woman screaming and helpless and take that away and go more to the the foundation that women's bodies can do this. I think That's what a lot of
2: people take into them when they think of birth. Exactly. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, you know, as you say, that's in our culture generally. So how can you positively brainwash yourself, you know, because birth is the ultimate expression of women's power. It's the most powerful thing that anyone can do to give, to grow a new life, to produce new life. I mean, and when you have that full hormonal experience of labor and birth, you come out of of it thinking, if I can do this, I can do anything. And that's what you need to look after your baby. And it it has ripples through your whole life. You know, it's the most. Empowering, positive. There's no superlatives to describe that feeling. And for many of us, you know, probably you and me, you know, many people that work in this area, that's why we do what we do. Because I had this amazing experience, and I want other women, other families, to have it. You know.
1: Well, I think it also affects how we share our birth with our children. You know, I was really fortunate, and some of my listeners have heard that I had a really positive birth experience that I heard of. My mom never talked about the fear. It was quick. It was she felt powerful during it, and so I grew up. hearing this story and just thinking that birth was very possible and very, you know, open and available where others, I feel if they had a traumatic birth, the mom is going to, whether she means to or not, pass down this trauma. And then the child's going to then have that as their image. So the more that we can help women have a powerful, empowered uh, experience, I think it, it goes to generation to generation. That's one thing that fires me up is knowing that. Yeah, I
2: did. yeah, definitely. And, you know, and, and from, you know, like translating that biologically, you know, I could say that when all, all those mechanisms get switched on in birth, then we parent in a particular way. You know, we, we sort of naturally do what we might loosely be called attachment parenting because, you know, those protective systems are turned on, those reward and pleasure systems are turned on. And we won't, it, I remember with my first baby, like I had this mental idea I was going to have a nursery and my baby was going to be in a little crib. And all, But once I gave birth, like I didn't want my baby more than a meter away, which is, you know, my biology kicking in, that fierce protective defense of maternal behaviors, and then the reward and pleasure kicking in. So, you know, in animal studies, all of those things, when, when the offspring get high levels of maternal care, they go on to give high levels of maternal care. And that's an epigenetic effect related to the oxytocin system. So there's certainly, you know, um, you know, biological models for the way that birth and particularly the, the relationship to early mothering can get passed on down the generations.
1: This is great information. I'm so thrilled. Can you tell our listeners more about where they can find you, your social media, your online courses, your website, your books? There's so much. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. If you want all the kind of um, hormonal detail, then go to childbirthconnection.org and download the report. There's also some um, resources there for women. There's a beautiful book um, about the hormones of labour that's also translated into Spanish. There's an infographic on the pathway to a healthy birth, um, and also for care providers. So that's kind of all the juicy science. That report has like more than 1,100 scientific references, so it's very grounded in the kind of things I've been saying. Um, I also recommend you go to my website Buckley.com and go to my subscription and download that free ebook called ecstatic birth natures hormonal blueprint for labor so it's a sort of short version of what i'm saying it doesn't have all the detail of the report there's also and, and then you get onto my professionals mail list there's also an ebook called pain and labor your hormones are your helpers which is a very simple version of this and again you get onto my parents list there um, if you want to know more of my interpretation of all of that kind of not so technically detailed um, i have a, a membership website called gentlenaturalbirth.com. I have an at the moment I have an early pregnancy program that goes into a lot of details. There's a great section there about choosing your maternity care provider. Very salient to what we talked about. There's um, uh, two videos um, talking about how to make wise decisions, how to you know weigh up all the pros and cons using a model, the brain model. Um, and also, if you want, again, you want more information, there's my professionals gentle natural birth membership, which has you know um, two a whole lecture on the hormonal. Physiology, the Ecstatic Hormones of Labor and Birth. It has a whole lecture on the impacts of interventions, which we've touched upon. It has um, lectures on the hour after birth, on things like group B strep, on things like cord clamping, cord blood banking, a whole lot of really great evidence-based information there as well.
1: Wow, so people can find you and continue to learn from you. So I just wanted to thank you for your time and for helping me arrange this because I know I had a really hard time figuring out between <laughs> Brisbane and New
2: York City. So, so uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that was a little challenging. And I just wanted to again thank you for your time, your effort, the work you do because it's so important for our women and for birth and for the babies. Um, so I will let you know when this comes out and and I just I'm so happy i have had a chance to chat with you. So I'm going to say good night. And listeners, if you liked this, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review. And please take your time and check out Dr. Sarah Buckley's information on her website and all her online stuff because she's really wonderful. All right. I guess it's time to bid adieu. Have a wonderful night and thank you. Or I guess morning for you. My pleasure, Dave. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank
2: you. Take care. Bye.